This week's case takes us back to the morning of September 15, 2007, when a man raced into the reception area at the Travel Lodge Motel near Heathrow Airport in London. The man was frantic. He told staff that he needed an ambulance. The motel is located in Heston Services. Services is UK speak for rest area. It's on the westbound M4, a very busy highway near the airport. It's frequented by flight attendants on layovers or people making flight connections. This is a two-star motel. It's the type of place that travel websites would describe as unassuming. After calling 999 emergency services, the staff entered the motel room, and that's when they found the man lying face down on the bed, wearing only a pair of underwear. He was dead, and it was obvious that something horrific had happened in there. There was blood everywhere in the room, most of it coming out of the back of the man's head. There were two large curved cuts there, and that seemed to be where a lot of the blood was coming from. The man in the bed was 30-year-old Gareth McDonald, a former pub landlord and father of three. Once police got to the scene, it wasn't too hard to find the murder weapon. On the floor, right beside the bed, was a blood-covered fire extinguisher. Forensic testing would later reveal that Gareth was beaten to death with that fire extinguisher. A few months before the murder, Gareth was just an ordinary father of three living with his wife in a small town in Wales. But police soon discovered that he had recently found a new lover, one with a lot of dark secrets. And police worked to figure out what was going on with his relationship and what really happened inside that motel room. I'm Katherine Townsend. This is Red Collar. Police in West London were interviewing the shock staff at the Travel Lodge Motel, trying to piece together what had happened to Gareth MacDonald. They pulled surveillance video from the motel and checked the registry records. They soon discovered that Gareth had not checked in alone. He had arrived and checked in with his partner, a man named Glenn Rycroft. Glenn told police that they had stayed overnight in the room together, but then he said he'd left the room that morning. He said this was so that Gareth could have some time alone with a sex worker. And he said that it must have been the sex worker who attacked Gareth after he left. CCTV video showed Glenn driving away from the motel at around 7 a.m. alone. Then he was seen coming back a short while later. He walked into the room and then went to the reception area to tell staff to call the police. So police wondered, who was this mystery person? And when had they entered the room? While they explored this theory, they started digging into Gareth's relationship with Glenn. Glenn was a 33-year-old former cabin steward for British Airways. They had only been together for a few months. And before that, Gareth seemed to be living the perfect family life with his wife and two children, plus one on the way in North Wales. 
While Glenn was fairly streetwise, he was from a suburb of Manchester called Salford. Gareth grew up in the tiny, super-isolated town in Wales. Now, I know that I'm probably going to butcher this pronunciation, but I'm going to do my best and trust that if I do make a mistake, a Welsh listener will let me know. The town was called Rowell Mostyn. Gareth was with his wife, Irlis, for 12 years. They got married in 2006, even though, according to the Manchester Evening News, he later admitted to having cold feet and some doubts before the wedding. He would later tell his wife that he'd known for years that he was probably gay and he'd been fighting his feelings. He met Glenn on an online chat room called FitLads sometime around 2005. For a while, they chatted and eventually they met in person. He started to fall for Glenn. Glenn told Gareth that he had gone from being cabin crew at BA to being an executive with the airline. But it wasn't until the next year when Ireless was pregnant with she and Gareth's third child, a daughter, that Gareth finally came clean. According to friends and family, that's when he told his wife, his secret, that he was gay, and broke the news that he had met someone online and fallen in love. Now, this was obviously shocking for her, but it seemed as though Gareth and Ireless tried to stay friendly, or at least civil, and to keep life as normal as they could for the sake of their children. Ireless said that she found out about the affair while she was around four months pregnant. She said she heard her husband making plans for a romantic weekend with someone else. To her shock, that someone else turned out to be Glenn Rycroft. She would later tell investigators and a courtroom full of people that this came as a complete shock to her. She had been with Gareth for 12 years. She said, I looked at him blankly, my head spinning. How the hell hadn't I known my partner of 12 years was gay? She went on to say that she knew Gareth was a nice guy and he had a lot of female friends, but she said, but I'd always thought it was because he was such a nice bloke. I never imagined he secretly fancied men. She said that Gareth told her that he had had attractions to men since he was young, but he said that even though during his teen years, he thought that he may be gay, he genuinely fell in love with Irlis, and he wanted a family life and to have kids with her. She would later tell the court that she was angry at first, but she had counseling, and actually, she said that Gareth leaving her for another man instead of another woman made it, in a way, not personal and easier for her to process. Despite everything, she said that Gareth never stopped being a brilliant dad to their kids. So, she said she did what she had to do to make sure that everything was as normal as possible. She actually came across in court, and in everything I've read about her is a pretty incredible person. It was very touching because you could really see how much both Ireless and Gareth loved their kids. And no matter how hard things got between them, they always seemed to put them first. They really seemed to be great parents. In February 2007, Gareth moved out of the house he shared with his wife and kids and moved in with Glenn. He told his parents about his new romance. Gareth's mother, Susan, told detectives that at first, her son thought that he'd found a great match in Glenn. He said that he was attracted to Glenn partly because he wasn't bothered by the fact that Gareth had children. He also said that Glenn was successful, and on the outside, Glenn did appear to have all the trappings of a very successful businessman. 
After Glenn left school, he went straight into a career with British Airways. He got a job as an air steward. Friends and family say that he was charming, well-spoken, and seemed to be a perfect fit for that job. Plus, he was always dressed to impress. By the time he met Gareth, he had a four-bedroom house and a brand-new car. According to the Daily Mail, Susan, Gareth's mother, and his dad, Chris, said that they liked Glenn at first. After they got over the initial shock, Gareth brought Glenn home. They said they were happy, basically, that their son was happy. And they said that Glenn seemed to be a caring person. Susan described Glenn as a charmer. Of course, she had no way of knowing at the time that Glenn's house was rented and his car was leased. Glenn wasn't a successful investor. He had another way of making money. According to the Manchester Evening News, Glenn did what a lot of con artists do. He would lie, but he would keep his lies kind of close to the truth, which made it easier and more believable. For example, Glenn told Gareth that he was writing an autobiography and said that a publisher had paid him £125,000 as an advance. He really was writing down his life story. Of course, he didn't mention the fact that he was just basically writing it down in notebooks. Of course, there was no book deal and no advance. After Gareth moved in with Glenn, they seemed happy. But what Gareth didn't know was that he, Gareth, had not been the only one leading a double life. Glenn was hiding some very dark secrets. Glenn left out a few very important details about himself, like the fact that he had done time in prison for fraud. And when Gareth met him, he was actually on probation. Glenn also no longer worked for British Airways because it turned out that he had used the company to scam friends, family, and colleagues. Glenn started his fraud back in the year 2000. He started telling people, including close friends and family, that he had a great opportunity for them to invest in the airline because British Airways had a bond scheme. Glenn then forged a letter on British Airways letterhead, basically saying that any money they invested would be paid back. It was a sort of high-yield investment. The money return was greater if people left it in longer. But in general, they were supposed to get a big return after about a year. Now, the reports of how much money they were supposed to get back kind of varied. Some reports said it was around a 23% return. Others said they would get triple their money back. Either way, it seemed like a large percent return. It seemed like it could have been too good to be true. But experts pointed out that because Glenn targeted close friends and family, these were the people least likely to question him. And again, parts of his story were true because he worked for BA and because the company was seen as reliable. They believed him. By attaching himself to a legitimate company, he was able to use the airline's good reputation to scam vulnerable people. There is an episode of a British TV show called Con Man Case Files that was made about this whole scam. During that episode, someone says that they think that being a member of the BA cabin crew gave Glenn a glimpse of a world that he wanted access to, but couldn't really get. As part of the crew, he was able to fly around to these exotic destinations, but the whole time he was working and staying in an airport hotel. And that wasn't enough for him. Glenn wanted a five-star hotel life on a motel budget. Meanwhile, he took all the money that his family and friends had given him to invest and just spent it all on himself. 
He went on 11 vacations in a single year, according to court records, to places including Barbados. He lived in a beautiful house and leased a series of expensive cars. He splashed cash on his friends, too. He took them on all-expenses-paid trips around the world, went on shopping sprees, and was finally able to stay in those five-star hotels. Then, right around the time when people were starting to ask questions, he broke some other shocking news to his friends and family. He told them that he had been diagnosed with brain cancer. In November 2000, Glenn Rycroft went on unpaid leave from his job at British Airways. He later resigned after telling his employer that he had a brain tumor. So, the lie about cancer really served two purposes. Number one, it made people less likely to confront him about the missing money. After all, how could you ask a dying man who, as he told everyone, had less than a year to live about a business deal? And when people did dare to ask, he would put them off and say they were being uncaring or insensitive. And two, the cancer lie allowed him to scam even more money from people around him. Soon, friends and family were raising more money, this time for Glenn's cancer treatment. No one knew that Glenn Rycroft didn't have cancer. He even scammed his mother and the rest of his family. They all believed he was dying, and that's one of the most shocking parts of this whole scam. His own brother, Paul, borrowed 10,000 pounds so that he could give Glenn 15,000. A family friend who had already invested 15,000 pounds in the bogus bond scheme gave him another 5,000 for his cancer treatment. During this time, according to media reports, Glenn went to great lengths to pretend to be sick. According to the UK TV show, Con Man Case Files, Glenn actually bought medical books so he could learn the treatment lingo. He even went to a costume shop to buy fake blood capsules. Then, he took the blood capsules and cracked them and put them in his ears. He would tell people that he was having seizures and the fake blood would come out of his ears. He shaved his head to make it look like his hair had fallen out due to chemotherapy. And then he upped his game even more. He actually got more letterhead from a local hospital called Stepping Hill Hospital and forged a note this time from someone calling themselves Professor Knowles. Now, investigators would later discover that this name was totally fictitious. There was no Professor Knowles, and there was a Stepping Hill Hospital. It did exist, but they didn't have a cancer ward. The letter said that there was an experimental treatment that Glenn could get, but according to the professor, the treatment was only available in Australia. So now, his friends and family are coming together, determined to raise this money for Glenn. They got the whole community in on this. They start planning a big local fundraiser at a pub. It's at this point that the story takes an even crazier turn, because Glenn, in a way, became a victim of his own success. If you're pulling a con, it's important to try and keep the lie pretty small and believable. By now, he wasn't just telling people he had brain cancer. He would tell people when he asked for money, He was literally on his way to the airport and that there was a BA jet on standby for him. Sometime around then, a woman named Debbie Henley got involved. She worked for British Airways. 
and she started to have doubts about Glenn's story while she was involved in planning the fundraiser. It was little things at first. She noticed that he kept making excuses for why he couldn't meet in person. And at first she told herself, okay, maybe this is because he's not feeling well. But other elements of his story seem strange too. Like, why was he driving himself to and from appointments? Why did he claim that he had to sign a contract agreeing to give no details about his Australian so-called miracle cancer treatment? And most worrying of all to Debbie, why did he refuse to have British Airways more involved in promoting the fundraiser? He seemed to not want publicity, which Debbie has said she thought was weird. Then she heard that the airline had given him 30,000 pounds. This was a huge amount of money. She said she knew for sure that it was a scam. When just before the fundraiser, she started making some phone calls and found out that Glenn had not worked for the airline for months. Debbie told Conman Case Files that she managed to get through the fundraiser. But on the night, she announced that the money raised would go to a local charity. Afterwards, a lot of people came up to her, she told the TV show. They asked her about the British Airways bond scheme and were asking her where their money was. She had to break the news to them that she had no answers. But right after the fundraiser, Debbie went to the police. Glenn was arrested and charged with fraud. Almost immediately, he admitted the truth to investigators. There had been no BA bonds. He had actually spent the money on himself, and he had never been diagnosed with or had treatment for cancer. Again, these people that he scammed, these weren't wealthy people. A lot of them lost everything. His best friend's parents lost their life savings. Glenn's uncle, John Rollins, lost 5,000 pounds. His brother-in-law was conned out of 26,000 pounds. And another close family friend lost 15,000 pounds. Some of his oldest friends from school and their families lost their life savings. One 43,000 pounds, the other 55,000 pounds. In all, Glenn stole more than 200,000 pounds from his family, friends, and the community. These people had sold raffle tickets for him. BA had donated free flights. And all this time, while he was pretending to visit hospitals, he used the money to take 11 vacations in a year. He was golfing in Portugal, lying on the beach in the Bahamas, and taking road trips across the U.S. He paid all the expenses for his friends, too. For example, in July 2001, he went to Australia with two of his friends. He put them up in expensive hotels, and he paid all the bills. He told his friends that he was going there for his experimental cancer treatment, and they believed it because sometimes he would disappear. He would say he was going for a hospital visit, and he would actually come back with hair missing from where he claimed they had shaved his head for a treatment. Then, after he talked to the police and confessed everything, instead of coming clean with his family, he poured gas on his car and purposely ran off the road in a horrible car accident. Some people driving by stopped to help and pulled him out of the burning wreckage. Now, some people believe that this was a cry for help or an attempt to take his own life. Other, more cynical commenters said they thought this was just a way for Glenn to avoid facing his family with the truth and to make himself once again the victim. They believed he wanted sympathy from them. Either way, it seemed to work. Glenn went to live with his mom and sister, who fully supported him through his court case. In December 2003, he pleaded guilty 
to 25 charges of obtaining money by deception. None of the 200,000 pounds was ever paid back. Once again, Glenn refused to accept responsibility. Instead, he said it wasn't his greed that motivated him to take the money. He said he was involved with a bizarre cult called the Community of Free Spirits. He said that a woman in the cult was the most important person in his life and that he, Glenn, had been essentially brainwashed. There was no evidence of this cult and the judge didn't buy that story. Glenn pleaded guilty to 25 of the 30 charges he was accused of. In 2003, he was convicted of fraud and sent to prison for four years. He was released after two years, and that's when he struck up his relationship with Gareth, who was from a small town far away in North Wales and had no idea about his boyfriend's shady past. In early 2007, things seemed to be going well. Gareth and Glenn were in love, and they even opened up a business together, a travel agency that was based in Manchester. At first, Glenn paid for everything. He took Gareth for romantic weekends away and expensive dinners and lavished him with gifts. But pretty soon, he was up to his old tricks. He asked Gareth's parents if they wanted to go on a luxury holiday. He said that he could arrange that for them. According to Susan, Gareth's mother, Glenn promised them the holiday of a lifetime. All he needed from them was a deposit. Gareth's parents believed Glenn. They seemed to have no reason not to. He presented himself as independently wealthy. It seemed like he didn't need the money, so why would he bother to steal their few hundred pounds? This is so common in red-collar scams, by the way. The scammers have this illusion of wealth, and they actually manage to make the victims feel guilty for even mentioning money. Some of them are really good at this. I'm always thinking about Clark Rockefeller, the fake Rockefeller. He would go out to an expensive dinner and then kind of turn around and expect the people he was with to pick up the check. These scammers make you embarrassed to mention money. It's a definite skill set, and it's very calculated. Also, con men often pick up the check in the beginning. They're smart, and they know that that way, when they go for the big con, this makes their victims much more likely to believe that they don't need the money and would never steal from them. Gareth's parents gave Glenn several hundred pounds, which his father, Charlie, told the TV show Britain's Darkest Taboos, eventually added up to several thousand pounds. And they waited. But of course, the holiday never happened. They didn't want to admit it to themselves at the time, but Charlie says that after a while, he started to think, this fella has taken us for a ride. And Charlie and Susan weren't the only ones having doubts. By mid-2007, it seems that Gareth was also starting to think that Glenn may be lying about money. The rent hadn't been paid for the travel agency space, and people who worked for them said they hadn't received their paychecks. Then, one day, Gareth was in a shop, and his bank card was declined. He confronted Glenn, and over the summer, text messages between them grew increasingly angry and heated. But Glenn kept trying to smooth things over the way he always had, by pouring money on the problem. Now, a lot of people have compared Glenn to Patricia Highsmith's character Tom Ripley. The British press called Glenn the real Mr. Ripley. But I actually see a lot of similarities between Glenn's behavior and the behavior of Andrew Cunanan, the serial killer who killed Johnny Versace. From a very young age, 
Like Andrew, Glenn seemed to display narcissism, a total sense of entitlement, and total psychopathy. Because, as experts have pointed out, only a psychopath could steal life savings from the people closest to him and then just go on with no remorse. In July, Glenn and Gareth went with two friends on a weekend jaunt to London. And once again, Glenn was splashing out. First-class tickets on the train, a top hotel, and a shopping spree at Harrods. Behind the scenes, though, their relationship was imploding. And at some point, there were signs that it turned physically violent. According to court records, a witness named Wayne Davies said that he saw Gareth having an argument with another man in the street, who was later confirmed to be Glenn. One week later, Gareth was dead. A witness whose girlfriend's parents lived near Gareth said that he had seen Gareth and another man, later identified to be Glenn, having a fight that turned physical shortly before Gareth was murdered. He said that he heard two men arguing in the street and saw Gareth walking away from Glenn. He said in court, I saw the shorter male, Gareth, walking up the hill and the bigger one coming up behind him and throwing him into the fence. Then I heard a bit of rowing. I remember Gareth saying, why won't you let me go and see her? Then he said that Glenn replied, you are not going to go and see her. It seems that Gareth had had enough. The police were able to access text messages sent between him and Glenn that summer. In one sent on June 26, 2007, Gareth wrote that he believed that Glenn was the con man people think you are. Glenn apparently must have told Gareth that he did plan to pay the money back and to make things right with his family, starting with 5,000 pounds he owed his aunt and uncle. So the day before the murder, Glenn and Gareth drove down to London to meet Glenn's aunt and uncle, Barbara and John Rowlands, the ones who lived in Canada, who Glenn had scammed 5,000 pounds from. Supposedly, Glenn planned to pay the money back to the couple, but something happened along the way. And then somehow, Gareth and Glenn ended up not meeting the couple. Instead, they stopped over at the travel lodge. Now, the prosecutor would later say that they got preposterously lost. He basically said that the stopover and the claim they took wrong turns were really just Glenn's lame attempts to avoid paying back the debt. When they failed to show up, Barbara Rowland started calling Glenn she left a series of increasingly angry voicemails on his phone. She told the court later that Glenn never picked up that day, and that as time went on, she was getting more and more angry and frustrated. Some of the voicemails are played in court. In one, she said, you're just having us on a wild goose chase, Glenn. We're going to miss our train. We have no money. You have our money. Our visitors are expecting us. We have checked out of our hotel. What can I do? She was telling him that she was stranded and had no money and no train tickets. In a final message to Glenn, she said, If you are where you say you are in London, there is no reason for you not to be here. When Glenn failed to show up, 
She said that she and her husband eventually made their way down to Cornwall. And that's where, she said, she heard the horrifying details of what had happened to Gareth. Glenn pleaded not guilty to the murder. He claimed he had nothing to do with Gareth's death. The prosecutor said, this defendant has shown himself to be rather more than a common or garden, I guess he means variety, liar. He is rather a good one. The fact that he had shown himself to be dishonest in the past is relevant to his relationship with Gareth McDonald. So the court heard all about Glenn's past scams, the fake cancer, the fake British Airways bonds, everything. The prosecution said that by the time Glenn drove away at 7 a.m., Gareth was already dead inside that room. They said the sex worker story was just something he made up to cover his tracks. Then, incredibly, Glenn took the stand to testify. And after it seemed that investigators didn't buy the phantom sex worker story, they pointed out that they never saw anyone else entering the room on camera, Glenn actually put the blame on someone else, Gareth. He said that he had noticed that Gareth was becoming more and more depressed and spending more and more time online that summer. He said that he looked at Gareth's searches on the computer and saw that he was searching for things relating to suicide with insulin blood poisoning. Gareth was a diabetic, and friends and family say that his health had been getting worse and worse in the months leading up to the murder. According to The Independent, Glenn told the court, quote, I found out that he was injecting himself with stuff that wasn't insulin, and that it was vodka on one instance, and also cleaning fluid on another. I'd found chat messages asking how the thrill had gone with the vodka, end quote. Glenn said that he began to notice these morbid messages on gay chat rooms around two months before Gareth's murder. He said, quote, He said it was to give him a thrill because the information that he had been given through the social networking sites about vodka was that it gives you a rush and makes you feel drunk quickly. It went to an extreme, though, because he started doing it quite a lot, which, in my opinion, caused him to become ill, end quote. The prosecution and Gareth's family made it clear that they believed that his poor health was caused by something else. They believed that Glenn had attempted to interfere with Gareth's insulin. According to media reports, police also believe that the reason why Gareth had been feeling so sick was because Glenn may have been tampering with his insulin. But this was never proven in court. Tragically, it seems like Gareth may have been figuring out that that was a possibility as well. During a hospital visit on September 12th, he told a nurse that his coming out as a gay man had probably been a mistake and said that he didn't trust his boyfriend. Three days later, he was dead. The prosecution also described the physical evidence police found in that motel room. They had matched fingerprints found on the fire extinguisher to Glenn. But Glenn and his attorney claimed that the fingerprints were put there during what Glenn called sexual horseplay. There were also traces of blood found on Glenn's trousers. The prosecution claimed that the blood patterns on the pants suggested to investigators that Glenn had beaten Gareth, which is what caused the blood to spatter onto his shoes and onto the leg of his trousers. Investigators also went through Glenn's computer and found his searches. The searches related to how to kill and can blows to the head kill. According to the prosecution, these computer searches happened in the days leading up to the murder. Then there was Gareth's estranged wife, Ireless. 
She told the court that Gareth had talked to her about the relationship and told her that even though Glenn seemed successful, as the relationship progressed, there were more and more problems with cash flow. He told her that he, Gareth, always seemed to be paying the bills. According to the North Wales News, Ireless told the court that Gareth told her he wasn't sure what was going on with the missing money at first. He wasn't sure it was Glenn who had taken it. At first, Gareth thought that someone else could have been taking money from his bank. She also talked about Gareth's bad health and about the fact that he kept having to go back to the hospital. She said, I felt he needed to get a different opinion from another doctor as he was constantly in and out of hospital. He seemed to feel as if he had this weight on his shoulders and he was worried. Once she said that she offered to pick him up from one of his hospital visits. She sent him a message. It read, I think you have got a lot going on in your life and it's making you ill. Ireless described her relationship with Gareth, the shock of the affair with Glenn, and how she had come to accept their relationship and stayed friendly with Gareth. She told the court that Gareth had been an amazing father. She described how he was at the hospital with her, holding her hand when their daughter was born. In fact, she said she knew immediately that something was wrong when he never showed up to take his daughters to a prearranged visit to a theme park. She said she knew that Gareth adored his kids and this just wasn't like him. She told the old Bailey that Gareth had gotten suspicious and she said Gareth started referring to Glenn as a con man. She said, quote, it came out that in the months leading up to the murder, Gareth felt he could no longer trust Glenn. He told his parents he thought he was stealing from him. In an angry message, Gareth accused Glenn of being a con man, end quote. Family and friends said that Gareth confronted Glenn and was threatening to go to the police. And that, they believe, is what finally made Glenn snap. Ireless also summed up her feelings when she said in court, Katie will never know her daddy, thanks to that psycho. She said that even though her dreams of a nuclear family with Gareth had ended, she wanted to make sure that her daughters always know how much their dad loved them. Glenn Rycroft was found guilty of Gareth's murder. According to the Manchester Evening News, Judge Timothy Pontius told him, quote, You are a habitual liar, well-practiced in the art of deceit, and more than ready to lie, not only for financial gain, but also to try and get yourself out of a difficult situation. You are not only a thoroughly dishonest man, but also a thoroughly unscrupulous and utterly cold-hearted one. You lived and have for many years lived in a fantasy world of your own warped imaginings. End quote. The judge said that Glenn had tried to fool the jury into making them think that he wasn't responsible for the murder. The judge said, quote, The facts of this case demonstrated clearly not a sudden unpremeditated attack arising out of a momentary loss of temper, but a considered, planned determination to kill Gareth MacDonald. The use of that 8-kilogram fire extinguisher to strike him with merciless brutality at least twice to the head the second blow following the first after a period of three minutes or more provides the clearest evidence there could be of an intention not merely to cause serious injury, but specifically to kill, end quote. And the judge went on and summed up pretty much Glenn's entire life. The last thing he said was, quote, 
You lived, and have for many years lived, in a fantasy world of your own warped imaginings, end quote. And as we know in red-collar cases, it's the moment when someone pierces the criminal's fantasy world that these red-collar criminals turn on them with vicious brutality. And they often turn on those closest to them. In this case, that person was Gareth, the person who loved, supported, and trusted Glenn and was helping him when he was down, was the person who Glenn beat to death in a rage and abandoned in an airport motel room, all because Gareth was trying to do the right thing. In July 2009, Glenn was sentenced to life in prison. Now, I've said before on this podcast, as someone who's lived in the UK for a lot of my adult life, the justice system does work differently, and I know that life there doesn't always mean life. But in this case, the judge clarified that Glenn would have to serve 25 years before being eligible for release. Gareth's mother, Susan, read a statement to the court. It read in part, quote, to learn Gareth was taken in such a horrendous way by someone we trusted and made welcome into our house is still unthinkable. Gareth was not only my son, but also my friend, and I miss him so much. It is such a waste. Words cannot really explain the pain of losing your child in the circumstances that Gareth died, end quote. Years later, Gareth's father, Charlie, and his mom, Susan, were still struggling to come to terms with what happened to their son and said they continued to feel guilt that they hadn't better protected him. Susan told the TV show Britain's Darkest Taboos, quote, Gareth wasn't streetwise. He was too trusting and, as a parent, that's where you think maybe I failed him, end quote. But Charlie said that when times get hard, they try to take inspiration from their son's positive attitude. Charlie said, quote, Gareth would say life's for living, and that's what he did. He lived life to the full. He enjoyed life. He loved people, end quote. Red Collar is an AudioChuck original podcast. Research and writing by me, Katherine Townsend, with production assistance from Melissa Gostola and Resonate Recordings. You can find all of our source material for this episode on our website, redcollarpodcast.com. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve?